Good morning, Grace. There's a scene at the very end of Luke's gospel that has always arrested my attention. It's in Luke 24. We're going to be in Luke 20 this morning. Um, But do you remember the scene at the very end of the gospel where Jesus has risen from the dead, and he hasn't yet made himself uh, known. He hasn't made his big appearance to the disciples. He's just kind of making himself known to a couple of even maybe some of his more distant followers on the road to Emmaus there at the end of Luke. They're still dejected and confused about how Jesus had been publicly executed. And now they're disoriented because some people are claiming that his tomb is empty, but they still don't really know what to make of all that or whether they should let themselves believe that kind of report. Meanwhile, they don't know that the guy they're talking to about this is the risen Jesus, just keeping it quiet for a while. It's really the ultimate undercover boss scenario to see like what they're saying about him when they don't know he's there. He's not yet telling them who he is, but he explains to them in uh, Luke 24, 36, or 26, it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. So he's showing them that from Scripture. They absolutely don't get it at this point. So it says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Well, that's amazing for a lot of reasons. First of all, it means that according to Jesus, the Old Testament comprehensively is about him, right? So that's not something an overexcited preacher made up doing a Bible study or something. That's like, that's Jesus's view of what's going on in the Old Testament. Comprehensively, there's stuff about him in there. Second, though, it means that understanding Jesus in the Old Testament is so important for his followers that even when he's right there with them in the power of the resurrection, what he invests his time in is a biblical theology workshop, walking them through Moses and the prophets. So let me ask you this way. Would you rather hear from the risen Lord Jesus Christ in person or do an Old Testament Bible study? See, it's a trick question. It's a false dichotomy. Because here he is saying, turn with me to Exodus. you You get them both. The third thing that always gets me about this story, though, is that Luke tells us the subject matter Jesus taught them about, but he doesn't record for us what he actually said. Does this bother you? I mean, seriously, has there ever been a better Bible study than this one? A comprehensive Old Testament survey led by Jesus, all about Jesus. What would you give for a transcript of even one little part of that Bible study, the greatest Bible study ever. Come on, just let me see the part about Isaiah is all I'm asking. Like, right? I mean, or I'm not even greedy, just the minor prophets and I'll be satisfied. What did he say? What happened to that information? Luke, brother, why didn't you write this down? Not enough paper? Were you running out of red ink? No, that's a a hundred years ago someone did the red letter Bible. It's a good idea, but anyway. um, let Let me put this in a dangerously unsanctified way for you. I would be willing to trade you in exchange for the Emmaus Road Bible study transcript three other small books of the New Testament to be named at a later date. I'm not gonna tell you which ones, and I'm glad you're not with me on this. Like, that's an encouraging laughter. Good for you. I was hoping someone would call me down on that one. It's bad. For one thing, the Word of God is perfect, 
and God is not sitting around waiting for me to express my preferences about his contents. So shame on me. But for another thing, and this is serious, we do in fact already have a lot of that material in the New Testament. That is, a lot of what Jesus had to have said to them on the road to Emmaus was probably what he had already been teaching all along during his ministry on the road to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem. Luke put together his gospel and the book of Acts later on, after the resurrection, after the giving of the Holy Spirit, when the disciples actually had thought back over all that stuff that Jesus had been saying to them all along, but now they understood it. That's when Luke's writing. So that means Luke's gospel already contains Jesus' actual historical teaching about himself from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, remembered and written down by spirit-filled disciples who may not have understood it in the moment, but who came to understand it deeply under the risen Jesus' instruction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's important. It means that instead of playing the, I wish I had a couple more chapters at the end of Luke game, what we ought to do, because we can, is understand the chapters we've got. Well, that's what we're doing this morning. Welcome to church. Turn with me to Luke chapter 20, where we have the great privilege and opportunity to study Moses under the leadership of Jesus, the master interpreter of what God says in the Bible. So let's read our passage. Um, Luke 20, verses 27 to 38. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man, that is his brother, must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second, and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Okay, these guys are the worst. The Sadducees in general were an important religious group that was very dogmatic about very inadequate theology. As Luke tells us here, they deny that there is a resurrection. And they're not some kind of fringe group or little cult, but a powerful and wealthy class of highly respected families with a lot of control of the temple 
a majority representation among the priests, you couldn't do business in Jerusalem without working with the Sadducees. Um, over in Acts 23.8, they're still causing a lot of trouble for Paul. We get some more detail from Luke. He says, the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. So they've got this system. But by contrast, Luke tells us, the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So overall, the theology of the Sadducees makes me sad, you see. Ah, uh, all right, sorry, that, that's like mandatory when you preach on the Sadducees, you gotta make that joke. But this little gang in particular seems especially feisty. They are on their home turf in Jerusalem and they're feeling it. And Jesus has come in from some little town up north, acting like he's somebody special, started to gather a crowd of listeners, and these professionals are ready to take him down a notch. So they approach him, they start it, they pick this fight, and they pose for him a stumper of a question. Okay, so you and I know that it's a very bad idea to pick a Bible fight with Jesus. It's like my advice to you is don't do that. If you want to write that down under applications, you know, in case the, if you don't get anything else from the sermon, like don't pick a Bible fight with Jesus. These guys don't know as much as we do about that, but they're about to find out. Now, they know a lot. These are fully accredited Bible scholars. They can tell from their question, or you can tell from their question that they've worked this whole thing out really carefully. And they think they've got a can't-miss interview tactic. They've engineered a really tricky question using some language from the story in Genesis 38 of Onan and Tamar and the rules in Deuteronomy 25. And they've put together this hypothetical scenario that they think proves there cannot be any such thing as a resurrection because it would be nonsense. Notice that they're not appealing to science or common sense or something like that. They're trying to use the Bible to make this point, and especially the first five books of Moses, which they really emphasized, to prove that there's no resurrection. In other words, although they're asking a question, they're not using the question to get to the truth. They're using the question to make their own point and perplex their opponent. They already start this conversation convinced that the resurrection is laughable, and they expect to end the conversation by rendering Jesus speechless. Well, Jesus is not by any means speechless. His response to their question has basically two points. Number one, that's not how any of this works. Point two, how dare you? Right? So point one, that's not how any of this works. Believe it or not, we need to look pretty closely for a moment at this strange provision made in the law of Moses about raising up offspring for a deceased brother, a brother who dies with no children. It's not part of our modern Western culture, um, but it's a widespread cultural phenomenon globally, and certainly in the ancient Near East. If you're curious about it anthropologically, check out Wikipedia's entry on Leveret Marriage, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, Leveret Marriage. Um, it has nothing to do, by the way, with the name Levi or Leviticus. Leveret's from a Latin word meaning brother-in-law. Um, and I don't always like recommend Wikipedia, but it's, it's really all there. Just a glance at Wikipedia will show you that this uh, tradition has existed in Asia, India, Indonesia, Africa, Arabia, so on. This is basic information about human cultures and laws. It's not just a Bible thing. Yeah. But in the law of Moses, God does provide rules for how and why to do it. Deuteronomy 25 starting at verse 5, says, so here's the, the, the letter of the law. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger, 
her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son who she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now that last part is the main thing to focus on. This provision is all about securing a possible future for a family line. In a situation where the hope of the future seems to have been cut off, I mean, things look bleak for the head of a household who dies without an heir. He's not just dead, that's bad enough, but his entire heritage and family line will now simply terminate with his own death. His name will be blotted out of Israel. His property will be dispersed, but nobody to inherit it. The family name will fade away and be reabsorbed. Other family lines and names and heritage will overwhelm it. It'll just be gone. So the goal of this provision in Deuteronomy 25 was that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Its purpose was to keep property and the family by raising up an heir to inherit it. This law was kind of a last-ditch effort to do whatever can be done within reason to rescue the future from the flux of history. Because it's not a guarantee, right? There's no guarantee that a baby will be conceived or survive to inherit the property and in turn pass on the name further. And the arrangement can't be put off for years and years. If you postpone it a long time beyond that initial season of it's time to have an heir, lots of problems start, and there's lots of stories about that. Um, The law provides instead for a chance, a kind of desperate last chance, almost a loophole for escaping doom that may or may not work to rectify a bad situation. That's the kind of law we've got here. Now, it has to be stated as a law to make sure that the brother-in-law doesn't see his brother's death as a chance to inherit more property or for the survivor to take the lead competitively in the family line, but instead to do the work of serving his dead brother's heritage and extending that line. The son born from this arrangement counts as the lineal heir of the deceased, through whom the name will live on and not be forgotten. Now, brothers-in-law, no slam on them or anything, but they do not always want to rescue their dead brother's names in this way. They are busy full-time making a name for themselves, and they prefer not to perpetuate the legacy of the dead. So the law in Deuteronomy 25, its real edge is it has a built-in curse for these brothers-in-law. There's a provision actually in there. Uh, I won't read the whole thing now. There's a provision where if the brother won't do this, the widow is now empowered to take him before the elders of the city, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face in court. And, and here's the kicker. I'm, I'm wearing sandals just as a visual aid. I was going to take them off and slap somebody, but it seemed like <laughs> it'd be memorable, but that's about all you could say for it. Um, but here's the kicker. From that day on, that brother-in-law's house will be called the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Right? Do you see the irony in this? Um, If you refuse to make a name for your brother, your name will be turned into Mr. No Sandals. (laughs) Like, great job. You really made a name for yourself there, loser. Okay, now, what are the Sadducees doing with this law? This is the background. It's hard to tell through their insincerity and mockery, but they seem to be treating this law like it's something that you can cling to as your great hope. Do you see that? The brother died. Then the other brother died, then the other other brother died, then the other 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 brother died, and so on. Look, the whole idea of running this scenario out times seven 
is ridiculous, and it's the essence of carnality, right? It's the essence of clinging to an embodied promise as your last hope. It treats the rules of reproduction as a demand to get a child at any cost, like times seven till everybody's dead. Just keep trying. Bring in the next brother. They just keep wearing out. Switch them out. Why? Because without children, on this view, we have no hope and no future. That's the trick, isn't it? Remember, the main thing we know about Sadducees is they don't believe in the resurrection. They have a theological system tightly limited to this life, this world, no resurrection. They're mockers, but this is the part they're dead serious about. If you don't get kids, you don't get a future. Your name perishes as if you'd never existed. Now, if you believe that, and you also want to believe the Bible, or at least the books of Moses, you're going to have to twist the entire meaning of God's promises. And this is where it gets weird. God promised Abraham, I will be your God. I will give you a descendant. I promise to give you the land. If you're a Sadducee, think about it. God's promise to be your God only lasts for as long as you're alive. Then they bury you, and it's over. He used to be your God, but now you're dead. You quit existing. So now what's left? Children and real estate. A kind of objective immortality for continuing your effects. Uh, so that's why you have to get results in this life, because this life is what there is, and all you leave is kids and land. Do you see how this changes the very nature of God's entire relationship with the people in the Old Testament? If the Sadducees are right, then the promise of offspring and property is the whole deal, the only permanent thing. It means that from Abraham's point of view, when God gave him Isaac and eventually the promised land, then God's promises were completely fulfilled without remainder, and it was just over. Check cashed. But is that really all God promised Abraham? A kid, land, and a few decades of life several centuries ago? No, may it never be. God did promise all of that, and he did deliver it, but he also promised himself. I will be your God. Genesis 15:1. I am your great reward. God's promise to Abraham, and you have to see this, was mainly spiritual. It was mainly about God. God gave Abraham not just a son, not just some land, but himself as his covenant God forever. So here is the part the Sadducees think is so funny. She married all seven. Who's married to who in the resurrection? Yuck, 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 hardy, har, har. Very funny, good guys. Jesus' answer, that's not how any of this works. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to, the age, to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Okay, this is just mind-blowing and category-busting for most of us. In the resurrection, who's married to who? Jesus' answer is that marriage is a thing of this world not a thing of the resurrection world. Uh, marriage is not a heavenly reality or a resurrection reality. Why? Because the big plan for marriage is centered up on the big plan of having children. 
marriage, family, reproduction. It's centrally about, uh, how do you put it, replacing the people who keep on dying by making some more people. So verse 36, in the age to come, they cannot die anymore. All the people in the resurrection age are permanent people. They don't need to be replaced. This is what it means to say that they are equal to angels, by the way. Humans don't turn into angels, and if anybody tells you that at a funeral, like maybe don't spoil the funeral or anything, but do not believe them. It's just made up. But in this specific sense, just like angels don't need to be replaced because angels don't die, those who rise from the dead are equal to that angelic reality in that way. Resurrection permanently solves the supply problem that marriage and offspring in this world temporarily solve. If there's such a thing as resurrection, then there's such a thing as permanent people. Now this is heady stuff, but here's one quick application for the Sadducees and two applications for us. Number one, application for the Sadducees. Stop being Sadducees. That's, that's easy. Read your Bible better, repent, believe. There is a resurrection. So the central tenet of your faith is just false. Knock it off, change your belief. You don't have to cling to procreation for the only possible meaning of life because God himself gives meaning to life now and forever. In the version of this same story found over in Matthew 22, there's an extra line. Matthew reports this line that Jesus said when he turned the tables on the Sadducees. He told them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So two problems you've got there. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. That's got to hurt. You know, you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. That's their application. And if there are any Sadducees in the room listening to me, this applies to you. So just like write that down and do that. But now, the other two applications are for the rest of us. Application two, don't project this life forward into the eternal life as if that's how it's going to work. It doesn't all transfer forward like that. Obviously, the problem scenario that the Sadducees posed would in fact be a problem if the future age is exactly the same as the present age. But it isn't. It won't be. The teaching of Jesus includes the perhaps surprising truth that human marriage is not an eternal status. After the resurrection, these human relationships we're in undergo some kind of change as great as the change that our bodies undergo. It's different somehow. We don't know all the rules yet, and we can't understand them until we get there. But here's a rule. You can't just take this life and hit the times infinity button to get an accurate picture of the resurrection or heaven. Heaven isn't just quantitative expansion of what's here and now. It's a qualitative change. It's not just more of the same. It's more of something different and better. I bet you have questions about this. Our own Alan Gomes wrote a really good book covering 40 questions about heaven and hell. That's the name of it, 40 questions about heaven and hell. Pick it up or go ask him. I recommend him just like cornering him between services and like just pelting him with all the hard questions. Here's application three. It follows from this that single people and childless couples are fully human and fully Christian, not partial or potential or incomplete human people. Do you see how that follows from the argument that in the resurrection, believers are neither married nor given in marriage? They're sons of the resurrection. This is in some ways a minor point of this passage, 
But it's a major point in the experience of single people who can sometimes feel like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Again, it ideally shouldn't be something we need to insist on because I bet nobody's walking around here actually thinking, I do believe that single people are not fully human. But a church culture that values strong, beautiful marriages and organizes resources and attention around caring for children can unintentionally and carelessly communicate to our single brothers and sisters that there's a kind of spiritual hierarchy in place. This passage in Luke has always functioned in the church as a sharp caution against that error. An obvious conclusion of this passage is that marriage plus offspring is not the meaning of life. That follows necessarily from understanding God and His power and His promises. If you fail to reckon with God, you'll look around for other sources of meaning, like marriage, posterity, art, culture, whatever is kind of the going thing that people invest their lives in if they don't have the real hope of God's promise. Just to pick out marriage, though, some of us disciples of Jesus Christ are married now till death do us part. But in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. It's tempting to say something like, Right now, some of us are temporarily married, but someday we'll all be single forever. But single would also be an illegitimate projection of our current understanding into an unimaginable future state. That's not how it works. I'll tell you how it works when I get there. (laughs) So those are three applications of the first point. Remember that Jesus had two points to make in response to the Sadducees. That's not how any of this works. And then the second point, how dare you? How dare you? Verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, that's Exodus 3, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. In the passage about the bush, Moses calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, and he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Here's what's going on. This pack of Bible bros comes out with guns blazing, fit to fight, sure they're right, proof text ready, with a podcast and a discernment blog and a nasty social media profile and a gang of friends, and they've got their chart with Genesis 38 and Deuteronomy 25 all aligned with their tribe's theological system, And they are jibber-jabbering, high-fiving, getting ready to dunk on their opponents. Mess him up, Caleb. And it's just literally ungodly. We're in the last few days of Jesus' life here, and he's absolutely serious about what matters most. When he came to Jerusalem, he famously, of course, drove out the salesman from the temple to restore its status as a house of prayer, Luke 19. Ever since then, he's been cleaning theological house, Teaching about the temple, authority, stewardship, money, it's really remarkable the teaching program to clean out the theological school in Jerusalem that he's got going on. He'll keep it up for another chapter or two. Here with these cocky Bible experts, he's got solid arguments to show them from the text that they're reading Moses wrong. He's not just above the fight, he's going to get in it, and he's going to win it, and he's going to name chapter and verse, and it's going to be conclusive. But He does it in a way that redirects their attention away from this nasty little debating society skirmish and back towards the holiness of God. 
Remember in Matthew 22, he tells them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So this is not just, oopsie-daisy, that's a tricky verse and you read it wrong. This is not that they divided by zero in some advanced stage of calculus. This is that they don't know the ABCs of God and his holiness. Those other mistakes can be no harm, no foul, as long as you're willing to learn and be corrected. This is a big mistake. This is ignoring God. This is ignoring his word, his kingdom, his power, his glory, his name. Jesus, who taught us to pray to God the Father, hallowed be your name, takes it on himself right here in this tacky little fracas with these ill-mannered Sadducee thugs and bullies to hallow the name of God. How does he do it? He takes them directly back to the burning bush. Exodus 3, Moses saw the fire, heard the voice, took off his sandals. Again, I'm not going to do it, but just the tension is to get your attention. Ah, ah. Take off his sandals and stood in the presence of the holy God. And what did God say? Moses recorded that the Lord called himself the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. What if the name of God really matters? Jesus teaches us here in Luke that it does. This is the Old Testament Bible study with Jesus when he shows us that the name of God in Exodus 3 is the most important thing and you shouldn't run over it to get to your little details. Listen to Exodus 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 3 starting with verse 4. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God calls himself the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. Did you even catch that? He doesn't say, remember that dead guy, Abraham, about 400 years ago? I used to be his God, but then he died. So then for a while, I was the God of Isaac, but he died. So next I was the God of Jacob, but he died. So whose God shall I be in the resurrection? That's not how this works. No, that's not what God says about himself or his people. He says, I am the God of Abraham. The God of Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, still the God of Abraham here in Exodus 3, Still the God of Abraham over here in Luke 20 where Jesus explains what it means and still the God of Abraham in 2023 where we're learning from Jesus how to hallow the name of God and understand its implications. According to Jesus, if God is the God of Abraham, then Abraham lived to him back there during his story in Genesis, still lives to him in Exodus 3 when God is still talking about him and still lives to him in Jesus' time and in our own time, and here comes the jump, Abraham will rise again and live to God in the resurrection. What does Jesus say? That the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And the underlying principle about God, the real theology going on here, the doctrine of God and his name here in Luke 20, verse 38, is... Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
for all live to him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not dead. All live to him. Now, we know they died and were buried. That is clearly recorded in Scripture, and Jesus has read those passages. And yet they all live to him. How? The secret is in God's self-naming, what he calls himself. God of Abraham means something about God. He identifies himself with this man by solemn covenant. But it also means something about Abraham. He's permanent. Father Abraham is a son of the resurrection. He's a permanent person in the presence of God. The permanence of Abraham comes from God identifying himself with Abraham. Abraham will personally experience the fulfillment of God's promises, even though it means that God will have to raise him from the dead for all of it to come true finally. Um, the check is certainly to be cashed in our future. In the meantime, somehow Abraham lives to God even now. Now let me try to say this calmly like a theology professor. Normally in the doctrine of eschatology, that is the end times or the final things, we distinguish between where you go when you die and what will happen when Christ returns. When a believer dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So at death, the soul and body are separated. The body decays, the soul is temporarily without its own personal body with Christ. Meanwhile, the world goes on without you, sorry to let you know that, until someday Christ returns and the dead are raised physically with a new kind of re-embodied life. When that happens, soul and body are united and transformed. Now, it's important to remember the difference. If you ignore the resurrection, you're thinking unbiblically, and you start to imagine that eternal life is some kind of permanently disembodied condition. And when you start down that road, heaven becomes all clouds and ghost bodies. And that's just not Bible teaching. Don't drop the resurrection. But if you hold to the resurrection and just ignore the intermediate state, then Christians who die just simply vanish into the darkness and silence. And Someday, maybe they'll start existing again in bodies, and that'll be great, but for now, they're just gone, gone. We need to remember both the intermediate state and the final resurrection. It's a big thought, but we should try to think it. And Jesus gets us there by giving us an even bigger thought. What's the bigger thought? God. God is the God of the living, and they all live to him. This precious saying of Jesus that is only recorded in Luke, they all live to him. God and Abraham, God and Isaac, God and Jacob, not one after another, but somehow all at once. He doesn't set one aside and say, I used to be the God of Abraham, but now it's all about Isaac. Oh, he's dead. Now I'm the God of Jacob. Up, oh, he's not feeling very well either. No, he says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Right now, all at the same time, they all live to him. In the details, we could say, well, first during his lifetime, then in a temporary disembodied state, and then in the resurrection, and then the eternal state. But can you see how Jesus takes an even larger perspective when he reports God's words from Exodus? Since God's name is God of Abraham, Abraham is alive now and will rise again. Now again, as a theology professor, I might want to correct him and say, well, Lord, I think what you're trying to say is that Abraham first lived in the flesh, currently exists spiritually in a temporarily disembodied state, and you intend to raise him bodily from death in resurrection eventually. Do I have that right? 
But Jesus leaps right over these differences. I think I do have it right. But Jesus just says, they all live to him. Big thought, comprehensive idea based in who God is. They all live to him, period. Details sold separately. God is the God of Abraham. Is he the God of Fred? If he is, then I'm permanent. He's not the God of the dead. Now, I don't feel permanent. I can already feel myself kind of winding down as the decades go by. But it's not about me or my physical. It's about God. It's about taking him at his word when he says who he is. If he's the God of Abraham and the God of the living, then Abraham both lives now and will rise again because of who God is. Is God the God of you? Is this your God? Has he called you and covenanted with you? That's the crucial question. If so, then he is permanently your God, and you are correspondingly permanent. Lift up your eyes. It's a God question, but it has you implications. Can we come back for a minute to single people, the unmarried? Thinking of them as not quite fully human is obviously an insult to them. And I think we're actually pretty well attuned to that. If you accidentally say something like, all the members of our church and the single people too, you catch yourself and slap yourself on the hand because you know better. But here's the big point, the really important point, also the point that it's harder for us to get. Demoting single people and childless couples is actually a result of failing to take God at his word about who he is. What I mean is the order always goes this way. If you misunderstand God, you will misunderstand people. That's always how it happens. Your anthropology can only be as good as your theology. If you downgrade God, you downgrade your neighbor without even intentionally trying. If you lose the father, you lose your brothers and sisters. Godlessness produces inhumanity. We've said that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also of me, but we need to be explicit here about one final thing that's in this passage. God is also the God of Jesus Christ. None of this stuff that Jesus is teaching actually works unless we see how the scriptures testify to Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Fortunately, it's right here in Luke at the very end of our passage. Look at, look at Luke 20, verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So I, I just love that. I bet like no more questions. Um, Nope, we were totally satisfied with that one. We will not engage you in any more cross-examination. But then Jesus turns to them and asks them a question. Like, okay, well, if you're all done with your questions, here's mine. But he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David just thus calls him, the Messiah, Lord. So how is he his son? All right, friends, there is so much going on in this passage, and we don't have time to explore it all. Psalm 110, verse 1, is the Old Testament passage most frequently cited in the entire New Testament. By one count, it shows up 33 times. If you want to do an awesome Bible study, just look those up. I posted the most important ones at my blog, fredfredfred.com slash blog. So I knew I wouldn't have time to get to it. It's like one of my favorite passages, so I just, it's there. Just uh, have a Sunday afternoon Bible study. Jesus raises this question to point out that before people can understand that he is the Messiah, 
they're going to have to seriously upgrade their whole concept of what the Messiah is. So the fancy footwork in Jesus' quotation and the interpretive question he uses to draw them in is this. How can David's son also be David's Lord? How can he receive his name from David but be inherently so much greater than David that he's David's boss? It's a really good question, but we have to skip over it for now, even though it's great, because I want to get to the actual oracle spoken by God. Remember, Jesus has trained us to listen in and focus on what God says. And here God says, Psalm 110, verse 1, quoted in Luke 20, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The key question we can ask is when did God say this to the Messiah, David's Lord? The answer is that God the Father said this to Jesus Christ at Jesus' own resurrection. That's where God displayed his power for salvation, the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 2. God showed the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us believe, to us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's an allusion to Psalm 110, right? Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This right here is exactly how God takes us to himself and becomes our God permanently. Step one is he does the whole thing in Christ. Step two is he includes us in Christ. The whole life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a thing that happens outside of us, in him. He's born, lives a perfect life of fellowship with and obedience to his Father, hallowing the name of God, seeking his kingdom. He dies for the sins of the world. That sin is dealt with decisively in him, buried with him. Then on the third day, he rises from the dead, never to die again. And God says to him, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All that happens in Christ. In these chapters of Luke, Jesus is doing all of that in real time as he walks towards the cross. And God is carrying out our salvation in him. Then step two, when you hear the good news and believe, you are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, by God's doing, you are in Christ, who became for us righteousness and wisdom and sanctification and every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. So as Ephesians goes on to say, you are made alive together with him, raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. By grace you are saved through faith. And this was always the plan for how God would effectively make himself permanently the God of permanent people. By putting the power of eternal life into his incarnate son, the Savior, and then connecting us to him. So it's because God is the God of Jesus Christ that he's the God of Abraham. Even though Abraham lived way before the birth of Jesus, God overleaps all of these boundaries, saved everybody he saves by including them in Christ. Our resurrection echoes Jesus's. He is the standard of God's power. He's the glory of God's name and the guarantee that we live to God. Will you pray with me? Father, 
Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing you. Illuminate the eyes of our hearts and let us see the greatness of your power that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand. Covenant God, God of Jesus Christ, God of Abraham, be our God. Be the God of grace. Be our God now and forever, and hallowed be your name. Amen.